It's HPR, All Things Considered, and I'm Dave Lawrence with the latest edition of our new interview series, Road Stories, found at hawaiipublicradio.org slash roadstories, where you can also subscribe to the podcast. And today, it's Long Island's finest, Blue Oyster Cult, an original member, singer, guitarist, Eric Bloom, ahead of their Sunday concert at the Hawaii Theater, giving us a buzz, the Hawaii Theater and underwriter of HPR. Eric, welcome aboard, brother. Hello, how you doing? What's going on? Uh, we'll be very glad to be coming to your town soon. And coming from the other side of the country, too, as we were just saying. And turns out, one of your earliest gigs at an important venue there in the New York uh, scene, Fillmore East, back in 69. Now, you were called Soft White Underbelly. The band name, your famous late manager, Sandy Perlman, had you changed to Blue Oyster Cult. After that early show at Bill Graham's famous club. Well, Bill was a wonderful man and also probably the best rock promoter that ever lived. We played Fillmore East on July 3rd, 1969, and that was my first show. Wow. And who else was on the... It was Jeff Beck. The Jeff Beck group with Rod Stewart was the lead singer. Jethro Tull was the middle act, and we were the opening act. And that's your first concert ever, Eric? Yeah, we played a, like a private party before that, <laughs> okay. but, but uh, that was my first gig. I mean, it was pretty frightening. I bet. Um, we'd never played on a stage like that. I'd gone to Fillmore as a fan right. you know, many times <laughs> yeah, right. and seen many other acts. <laughs> and, and to actually walk up to that mic and go, one, two, three, testing, <laughs> one, two, three, you know, it was frightening. <laughs> So, among all the things you're connected to, let's throw in a, a totally different one. Patti Smith, getting linked to her, collaborations, and, and how that all began. Well, my goodness. Well, Sandy introduced us to Patti before we even had a record contract, 69 or 70. Mm-hmm. I think he was sweet on her. <laughs> okay. Uh, she was dating, um, I'm having a senior moment now. <laughs> Okay. He was an actor. He just passed away a couple of years ago, and he was in the movie The Right Stuff. He was a playwright. Right Stuff. Well, that would be Sam Shepard, Fred Ward. Sam Dem- Shepard. Sam Shepard. Got it. So I guess before we knew Patty, she had been dating him. And Sandy liked foreign cars, so he had a, um, an Alfa Romeo, a four-seater Veloce GT, as I recall. Wow. And think about Sandy, though. Even though he liked those things, he was not a great driver. <laughs> And the more he talked, the slower he'd drive. <laughs> so apparently what the anecdote was that he's driving Patty and Sam somewhere up First Avenue in Manhattan. And Sam, who was kind of a macho kind of guy, didn't like the way Sandy was driving. He made him get out of his own car and took over. Oh. Didn't like the way he was driving. <laughs> and he you know, made Sandy stop driving and drove the car. Now, on with the Patty. It was Sam, Patty, and Sandy in the car. Right. So I guess after she stopped dating him, Sandy, he's the one that told her she should start a singing career. She didn't think she could sing. Um, wow. Sandy thought that she should maybe work with us and that we should back her. Oh, my. Which never really came to fruition because we got our own deal. What an unusual combo for many fans and their perceptions. Well, it may never have worked. 
Right. But it was a thought back before we had a record deal. And were you guys like buds, too, or was it all professional stuff? Well, yeah. Well, she was dating our keyboard player, Alan. Okay. There was a bit of a connection. And when we got our audition with Clive Davis, who was the president of Columbia Records, you know, she was in the uh, little small audience of about 10 uh, when we did the audition. Blue Oyster Cult's big break that got them onto Columbia was they got to audition for this amazing, huge record mogul that we hear about a lot on the show, Clive Davis. Well, I got two quick stories about Clive Davis. Sure. Murray Krugman, who has worked at Columbia Records, got us in the door and he says, you have to do an audition for Clive. He didn't want to come to a club. He wanted us to audition in the Columbia building, 53rd Street and 6th Avenue, sort of a tinted black glass building in Manhattan that everybody had nicknamed Black Rock. Right. They cleared out a meeting room (laughs) in the 12th floor with like uh, fluorescent lights in the ceiling. (laughs) You know, so we set up and then against the other wall were about 10 chairs facing us. Harry Nilsson was there. And he just happened to be visiting that day in the building. Bobby Columbia was there. He was the drummer in Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Patty Smith, who is uh, Alan's girlfriend. And uh, Sandy Perlman, our manager. And the A&R department of Columbia Records. Like three or four guys. Clive Davis. And then we walked in the room and played five songs. About the third song, Harry Nilsson got up and left the room. (laughs) (laughs) So... I figured, you know, I sang every song. I figured, oh, we must suck. <laughs> you know, Wilson just left the room. But about halfway through the fourth song, he came back in and sat down. So uh, when the audition was over, everybody left. It was milling around. And Nilsson, uh, I went over to him, did a I'm not worthy kind of thing with him. Yeah. I said, why'd you, why'd you leave the room? He says, I had to get a cigarette. <laughs> Anyway, Sandy walks back in and says, Clive likes you and he wants to sign you. So that was our big audition with Clive Davis. Now, the second story, let's move forward 40 plus years. His induction into the Long Island Music Hall of Fame, (laughs) 2019 or something like that, before COVID. And I went because Blue Oyster Cult is already a member. So Clive is sitting down having dinner and I walked over to him and I told him who I was. And not only didn't he know who I was, he didn't remember doing the audition. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Says a lot about a busy career he had, huh? Yeah. The nature of having to do your first audition with people like that. And of course, that spins off of of the Patti Smith Association, which I think a lot of people who listen to Blue Oyster Cult would probably, especially if they know your songs by the radio, they wouldn't be associating you, you with Patty. Another cool thing that people might associate you with, though, that's a great story, I think, that connects to many, many folks. I bet you talk about it a bunch. When did you first become aware of the Saturday Night Live More Cowbell skit and talk a little bit about that entering your life, what it means to be kind of immortalized in such a, a, a way? <laughs> Well, I became aware of it because I saw it live. I was sitting home. I had a rare Saturday night off. And there I am watching SNL. And they start off Blue Oyster Call. They go, what? <laughs> I was pretty shocking to see what are they going to do to us, you know? <laughs> you know, they never told anybody they were doing that to us. We had no idea. And then there's uh, Will Farrell obviously playing me um, <laughs> with a shirt that's too small for him with his stomach sticking out. I said, well, that's pretty funny. 
And, uh, of course, they got a lot of things wrong in that skit. You know, it's irrelevant what they got wrong. But Jimmy Fallon, actually, by he's cracking up so bad. Some of the secrets of that is that the cast members of SNL are cracking up through the whole thing. That's what makes it so funny. And then it becomes this cultural thing. More cowbell. They're ad-libbing, you know, over the original script so much. And I think it's um, mostly uh, Christopher Walken. He uh, ad-libbed a lot of lines, and I think he's killing those guys, the (laughs) SNL guys. They're just laughing their asses off. Part of how a lot of people know the band, actually, who might be listening today, uh, quite frankly. Well, yeah, and and it's kind of funny because people think uh, you're that cowbell band, you know? Which is kind of funny because we've been doing this over 50 years. You know, I remember sitting in a pool... It was in 1983, and I was in Hilton Head Island in South Carolina, and this guy had this tattoo on his hand, and I remember saying to him, what is that thing on your hand? And he had it in between his thumb and his forefinger. He said it's a symbol of a band, Blue Oyster Cult. When did you guys come up with that interesting symbol that was so evocative people tattooed it on themselves? Also an interesting story, there's a guy named Bill Galdick. He went to Stony Brook with uh, Richard Meltzer and Sandy Perlman. He was uh, an artist, and Perlman suggested that he be the guy to draw the first album cover. When he presented the artwork for the first album cover, he incorporated what became our logo in the artwork, became, you know, indelibly etched as uh, the Blue Oyster Cult logo. When was the first time you saw it tattooed on somebody? Oh, I uh, we all the way back. I I couldn't tell you what the first time was. A long but, time you know, ago. I've seen I've seen several people who have it backwards, <laughs> and I never say a damn thing. <laughs> I say right on, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's Eric Bloom and it's Blue Oyster Cult. They're Sunday at the Hawaii Theater. Wishing you a safe trip, and I hope you've enjoyed being on the show today. Yeah, absolutely. Take care, brother. Thanks. Bye bye. Aloha. Take my